Justice Thomas has written a very interesting opinion about whether or not the law can stop social media like Twitter and YouTube and Facebook from censoring material. Is the solution worse than the problem? You'll hear why it is a difficult choice on The Dirt Show. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has just written a concurring opinion, which raises really fascinating issues about uh, how we can control the excessive censorship of the Internet without in any way seriously intruding on the First Amendment. Um, it was a concurring opinion in a case which, ironically, the then president, Donald Trump, was trying to engage in censorship on the Internet. That is, he was precluding certain people who obviously were very critical of him of responding to his Twitter feed and uh, forwarding his Twitter feed. So ironically, uh, then President Trump, who was railing against the censorship of the media, was himself trying to control uh, his own uh, Twitter feed. And of course, then Twitter banned him uh, completely. And the case went to the courts and it came up to the United States Supreme Court uh, about a week ago. And the court dismissed it as moot, correctly, because he's no longer the president. And the issue was whether the president, uh, as president, uh, an official of the government, can control access to his Twitter account, which he used both in a private and a public capacity. It would have been an interesting case, but it was moot because he was no longer the president by the time the case came up to the Supreme Court. So unanimously, the Supreme Court dismissed the case as moot. But that didn't stop Justice Thomas from writing an interesting opinion, really more like a law review article. Uh, it's uh, all dictum and concurring. It's not the law. But he basically said, look, we have a problem, and we're going to have to deal with this problem uh, sooner or later. And inevitably, there's going to come a case uh, that the United States Supreme Court will have to take about whether or not uh, the major, major media internet outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Google, are going to be able to control what we see and what we hear. Um, he was focusing on Twitter in this case because that was the case before the court. And Twitter has a policy of saying they can tell anybody that they can no longer um, be on Twitter for any reason or no reason at all. It's right in their policy. They can do it for no reason at all. If they don't like the tie you're wearing, if they don't like the party you belong to, presumably if they don't like your race, um, they can say, um, you know, no blacks allowed, no whites allowed, no Jews allowed, no gays allowed. Maybe that would violate other public accommodation laws, but according to at least the Google standards, they can do anything they darn please because they're, uh, you know, Twitter in this case. But Google has standards as well, and so does Facebook. Facebook now has a, quote, Supreme Court of distinguished people deciding whether to censor or not to censor, but it's still private censorship of public discussions. And so uh, Justice Thomas, who was never my favorite justice, but who every so often comes up with really interesting and, and quirky ideas um, akin to those sometimes uh, articulated by, I think, his mentor, it's fair to say, Justice uh, Antonin Scalia. And, you know, Scalia was a, a good friend of mine. I enjoyed my conversations, my interchanges with him. We rarely agreed, but we agreed to disagree, and we agreed uh, to argue and debate, and it was always fun to debate with a brilliant mind like Justice Scalia's. Um, and so today, I want to use the Der Show as an opportunity to begin a debate and a discussion with my audience, my viewers, my listeners, as to whether we should leave the um, Internet alone uh, or whether there are ways of dealing with the power, the enormous power of the uh, Internet. 
Justice uh, Thomas suggests three essential approaches, all of which raise problems, uh, but all of which deserve serious consideration. The first issue he raises is whether or not today Twitter and, and, and Facebook and Google and others are, uh, are can you say, they're, they're common carriers. Uh, common carriers are trains and buses. They're open to everybody. And uh, you can't say to somebody, we don't like the way you look. You can't get on our train. You can't get on our bus. Uh, and there's a whole law of common carriers that goes back to before the Constitution, before the First Amendment. And so he says, look, the First Amendment was written with common carriers in mind. Everybody at the convention, everybody who voted for the First Amendment was aware of exceptions for common carriers under British law and under early American law. But you know, common carriers generally don't involve First Amendment rights. They involve, as I say, mostly transportation. Uh, I'm sure they applied as well to the Pony Express and to uh, other ways of transporting at an age when really we were talking about horses and buggies and steam engines. Um, now, there is one analogy he makes that comes a little closer. When the telegraph was first invented, it was seen as a common carrier because it was akin in some ways to railroads. It used wires that crossed the country, and it was something like a common carrier. And there are cases that say that the telegraph company can't discriminate and presumably can't decide that they don't like your message. I wonder if that really is the law, if somebody was using the telegraph to uh, uh, solicit child pornography or, or other crimes. Uh, I would imagine that the telegraph company would uh, censor some of those communications, but uh, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure there was much law on it. I'm just not familiar with the extent to which uh, the telegraph company could be regulated in its First Amendment um, uh, content. Same thing is true of telephones. Of course, telephones are different because if I call you on my telephone, nobody's listening in. And so nobody knows whether or not a crime is being committed or we're discussing something that would be illegal or improper. So the telephone company hasn't tried to interfere with your right to communicate with me and my right to communicate with you. Telegraphs are different because they're readable and they're open. And uh, so these are very, very interesting approaches. Uh, there are dangers to regarding the Internet communicators as common carriers. It could restrict First Amendment rights. It would mean that uh, they have to treat everybody equally and what every idea equally. Um, what about uh, medical misinformation that could cause uh, deaths? Um, what about um, uh, communications that uh, are criminal in nature, that incite violence, or that um, uh, communicate uh, extortion or other kinds of things. So uh, it's not a complete answer, but it's certainly worth discussing a common carrier. The other one that he mentioned was a kind of a public accommodation or open accommodation laws. If you hold yourself out as open to everybody, if you say, look, anybody's welcome in my hotel, anybody's welcome in my train, you can't suddenly say, no, 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 except for you. Well, you're not welcome because of your race. You're not welcome because of your religion. Um, and so the question is, can uh, Google and, and Twitter and Facebook say you're not welcome because of the content of your ideas? We don't like the content of your ideas. Uh, that's a real, real uh, question. And the third question that he implicitly poses 
uh, he relates it really to the first two, but it can be also seen as independent. Can the antitrust laws come in and regulate these three giants that they control so much of our uh, communications across the country? Um, and uh, again, uh, if uh, three newspapers uh, controlled all of the media in the country, if the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post uh, had a market share of 95 percent. It doesn't. It's not even close. Uh, New York Times has a readership of, you know, maybe a million. The Wall Street Journal, a million and a half. Who knows? Uh, but that's a tiny fraction of all the media. But the social media do have dominant control over information flow. And so could the antitrust laws be used to control uh, content? Uh, these are very hard questions. Or put it more negatively, can the antitrust laws, public accommodation laws, open access laws, common carry laws be used to control censorship by the media? Can it be used to send a legal message to the media? No, no, no. You have to have standards. You can't do what Twitter does. You can't say, we can cancel you for any reason or no reason at all at any time without explanation. No, you're uh, obliged to at least have a standard to at least try to articulate what uh, your criteria are. Um, so this debate will continue, and it will continue unabated. And I think we owe a, uh, a word of thanks to Justice Thomas for putting this issue in the forefront of the American consciousness. When a justice of the Supreme Court uh, writes an opinion, people uh, listen uh, and uh, people pay attention uh, to it. Uh, look, what's going on with the public, with the um, uh, internet today is is disgraceful and unacceptable. Uh, they are imposing massive censorship. Uh, I think I've mentioned to you most recently my debate with Robert Kennedy over vaccination. I take a more pro-vaccine point of view. He takes a more skeptical point of view. But neither of us take positions that are irresponsible or convey misinformation or wrong medical advice. And yet uh, it was taken down by, by YouTube. You cannot today go on YouTube and watch my debate with Bobby Kennedy, unless they put it back up. I haven't checked uh, recently. Uh, YouTube also took down a very interesting discussion sponsored by the Steamboat Institute, which is a middle-of-the-road uh, conservative uh, debate platform. I recently debated Robert Post, the former dean of the Yale Law School, on uh, issues regarding academic freedom and free speech. It was a really good debate. It was as good as any class discussion. And it hasn't been taken down. But uh, YouTube suspended Steamboat for a week uh, for basically challenging its decision to take down a discussion of the elections. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And the uh, internet providers are, are becoming more and more powerful. They're flexing their muscles more. They're censoring more. And uh, they, with the exception possibly of Facebook, which is at least addressing the issue by its, quote, Supreme Court, which makes me nervous. I don't like uh, private citizens, platonic guardians telling me what I'm able to read and what I can't read. But it's probably better than nothing. But uh, as far as I know, Twitter is doing nothing. It's just making its own decisions and uh, deciding what you can tweet and what you can't tweet and what you can respond to and what you can't respond to. That seems to be an unacceptable situation in a country devoted to the marketplace of ideas. But the problem is, is the cure worse than the disease? Uh, do we want to give the government power and authority over private um, social media 
which themselves have their First Amendment rights. Uh, they are, in some respects, like the New York Times and the Supreme Court has said in the Miami Herald case, you can't tell the New York Times or the Miami Herald what to print and what not to print. Uh, can you tell YouTube what to put on and what not to put on? Very, very difficult, very complex questions and questions that deserve very serious consideration. Today in the Wall Street Journal, there's a very good article. I could have written it. Um, it's what I've been saying now for a long time uh, about why liberals on college campuses aren't defending free speech, why the new liberal mantra on college campuses is that free speech is patriarchal and colonial and uh, intersectionally violative and you name it, every cliche in the book to try to diminish the role of the marketplace of ideas and free speech, that free speech is part of white domination and absurd arguments, but arguments that are finding currency in university campuses. So we're seeing a little bit of pushback, but we're seeing it in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, uh, not so much in the pages of the New York Times. We're certainly not seeing it on CNN. We're certainly not seeing it on MSNBC. Today, free speech has become an issue more of concern to the center-right than the center left. Um, we liberal Democrats who really maintain our position as civil libertarians are a shrinking minority on academic campuses. We are endangered species and uh, it's a very serious problem. Uh, you might wanna watch my debate with Robert Post. We talk a lot about what's going on on college campuses. It was sponsored by Steamboat. So if you just Google Steamboat Dershowitz Post, I'm sure you'll find it, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, it was entertaining and thoughtful. Uh, Post is a brilliant, brilliant academic, former dean of Yale Law School. Um, I started the debate by saying we have major diversity in this debate. We have two old, white, Jewish men born in Brooklyn, clerks for the same judge, Judge David Bazelon, teaching in elite uh, law schools and academic institutions for many, many years. But despite our similarity of background, we had considerably different views on some matters of academic freedom and how to approach issues of free speech on college campuses. So you might find it useful and interesting. But I regard today's show as the beginning of a debate. Um, you can go and read Justice Thomas's opinion. It's available online very easily. It's only about, I don't know, 12 or 13 pages long, and it's well-written. It's like an op-ed. Uh, it's very easy to read, and he lays out the arguments that I've just suggested. And uh, please uh, read it and call me and let me know what you think of it. Let me know whether you think there's a solution to this problem. I've kind of thrown my hands up and said, it's a problem. We know it's a problem. It raises serious questions about open society and freedom of speech, but the solutions may be more dangerous than the problem itself. So maybe you can persuade me that there are solutions that are less dangerous than the problem. So please call in, please have your wits ready and make your calls and comments uh, to The Dirt Show about freedom of speech and the internet and Justice Thomas's interesting opinion. Now my favorite part of The Dirt Show, The Wits, our first call. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. My name is Oliver. I'm calling from Slovenia, Europe, and I'm a big fan of yours. I have a question about the U.S. voting system if compared to the EU voting systems. In all the EU countries, all types of voting, in-person, absentee, early voting, require an ID, a signature, and a registration in official voting registers. 
absentee voting is very limited only to hospitalized voters, to inmates, this is allowed, and to similar situations. Early voting is limited to just a few days before the voting date with mandatory pre-requests. Ballot harvesting is inconceivable and therefore it's not even regulated. Why do you think that in the US, US the discussion is based on such basic voting principles that are completely undisputed here in Europe? It's a great question. I think the answer is one word, race. We know that race was used for many years in our country under the Jim Crow laws to limit voting, eliminate voting by African-Americans. Uh, I'm not in any way suggesting that the laws that have been passed in Georgia and now a number of other places, pending laws are anywhere like Jim Crow. It's absurd. If during the Jim Crow period we had voting regulations like in Georgia, everybody would be applauding them. But people have greater expectations and people worry that the motive behind these laws are to make it more difficult for minorities to vote and to make it easier for Republicans, which don't generally get a majority of minority voters to win elections. So race, I think, helps to explain why we're a little bit more sensitive to voting restrictions in this country than perhaps around the world. But what a great question. What a great insight. And you've certainly taught me something I was not aware of, how easy it is to vote in EU countries. Thanks. This is Peter from Berlin. Thank you for your great show. Here's an art question hypothetical. Assume that you purchase art that later you learn was stolen. When should a purchaser of art prevail by arguing that the art object should not be returned to a previous owner because the purchaser was a buyer in good faith? And for art stolen during the Holocaust, are there exceptions to the buyer in good faith defense? P.S. I have paid my tuition several times. Well, thank you both for paying your tuition for a great question. I've been deeply involved in efforts to restore stolen Holocaust art. It's very complicated because there are art that was just plain ordinary stolen. People were taken out of their houses. They were sent to the gas chambers and the Nazis took their art. Those are somewhat easy cases. There are many other cases during the early 30s, particularly when the Nazis came to power uh, and they forced Jewish art dealers and art owners to sell to uh, the Nazis at uh, prices ridiculously below the market value. And some of those are regarded as stolen, some of those have been regarded not as stolen. The general law is if you're a bona fide purchaser, if you bought the art without any inclination or indication that it was stolen, generally they can't take it from you. They may have the right to buy it back from you, but they can't take it from you without uh, payment. But, you know, Holocaust art is different because anybody who bought art uh, without a provenance uh, between 1933 and 1945 should be unnoticed. I, about 10 years ago, I bought a Dutch painting at auction and um, they said they were going to send it to me. And I said, no, 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 don't send it to me until you send me the provenance. I, it's a Dutch painting and it was painted in the 1920s. And um, I need to know that it didn't come from a, a Jewish home. And it took me a year, and it took them a year to trace back the provenance and discover that, no, sure enough, it was uh, bought, and it was bought after the war, and it had a perfectly proper provenance, and I, I, I bought the art. But I wouldn't have bought it, because I'm on notice. Any art that has any, any connection to Germany or any of the countries occupied by Germany after 1939, you have to have exquisite provenance, perfect provenance, and even then you have to raise doubts about whether or not the provenance could have been faked 
So it's it's a very difficult question. And there are many, many cases in the Supreme Court. I've helped litigate some of those cases, some of the art we've gotten back for families, some of the art we've not gotten back for families. It's very much a working process. And I'm very, very sensitive to it. I would never buy a piece of art that had any question associated with it. And if I ever did, I'm sure I would just return it uh, to a family uh, of people that uh, were descendants. But there are complications, and uh, it's not an easy area of law. There are some lawyers who specialize in this. My friend Stuart Eisenstadt, my former student, has done wonderful things uh, in terms of getting uh, um, payments to victims, slaves, and others, people who were killed during the Holocaust. He's devoted so much of his life to getting reparations. He deserves tremendous praise for the efforts he's made on behalf of survivors and, and their families. So uh, art is a complicated issue. Let's go to our last caller for today. Hello, Professor. On yesterday's show, you spoke about how you would support the boycott of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Uh, there's a lot of talk about boycotting the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, considering the genocide of the Uyghurs, which we don't know all the details, but it looks like it might be comparable to the Holocaust. And I'm not trying to put down the Holocaust in any way, shape, or form. Would you support a boycott of the 2022 Olympic, Winter Olympics in Beijing? Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your great question. As I've said before, these are matters of degree. Berlin was the worst because Hitler wanted to use Berlin as a showcase for racial superiority. He wanted to prove that uh, white uh, Germans, uh, Aryans were superior in every way, including athletically, and he imposed restrictions. Uh, Jews couldn't run. Um, the number of African-Americans and other people who were not allegedly Aryans were restricted. The Olympics itself was tainted by racism. Uh, Beijing is different. The country is a terrible uh, exemplar of human rights violations, particularly the way it treats um, Muslim citizens and, and dissenters. On the other hand, the Olympics will be conducted fairly and openly, and it won't be designed to prove Chinese superiority or the superiority of communist regimes. So it's a closer question. I think a lot about the young men and women who spend their lives training for the Olympics. So I have a strong, strong presumption against um, bowing out of the Olympics. I think it was right to do in 36. I think it was wrong to do when Jimmy Carter uh, did it. And I think probably it would be wrong to do it for the Beijing Olympics. But I have an open mind. I'd be interested in hearing some of your views on this. You know, today, again, I've learned so much from your question. It's just brilliant questions, great insights, great thoughts. So please tell, keep telling your friends to subscribe, to listen, to view, and most importantly, to send in good questions and call in good comments. That's the heart and soul of The Der Show. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And thank you for sending me great questions on The Der Show. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.